Greetings, friends, followers, and foes. I'm back for another episode. This year has been very busy. If you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you may know that there have been multiple times when I've wavered in regard to whether or not I wanted to end this podcast, as podcasting is often a tedious hobby and takes up a lot of time. Time that is very rare in the summer of senior year. Oh shit, I'm old. No, no, I'm not planning on ending the series. However, I hope you understand that, unlike the previous summer, unfortunately, I will be unable to schedule a precise release pattern for my episodes. Along with that, many of them may be based on salvage history essays, which, hear me out, are actually pretty interesting. So... For my end-of-year research project for APUSH, I decided to write about Clinton administration peacebuilding in Northern Ireland. I originally planned to do this for my American Foreign Service Association essay contest after my APUSH teacher, who is Irish by the way, suggested it as a good example of successful peacebuilding. However, after realizing the essay had to be about a current event, I changed it to the war in Ukraine, which I recorded in another episode. I decided it would be very cash money of me to choose this essay for my research report, which is the topic we will divulge into this episode. So yeah, enough of the commentary, let's get into the episode. Forward, I didn't really explain in this essay the geopolitical history of Ireland beforehand, which would be really great context in regards to this essay. But because this has to be about, like, the Clinton administration era of peace building in Northern Ireland, I wasn't able to do that, unfortunately. But I would recommend, if you're interested in knowing the situation behind it, um, Manny Man Does History, aka John D. Ruddy. His videos are pretty great and good entertainment value. The Troubles was a sectarian conflict in Northern Ireland from 1968 to 1998 between armed groups fighting for either unity with Catholic Ireland, nationalists, or remaining Protestant British, unionists, claiming around 3,600 lives. Oh, look at the irony. The guys who wanted to unify with Ireland were called nationalists, while the guys who wanted to remain with Britain were called Unionists. Interesting. Moving on. Pause for a moment. Primary source alert. My teacher, like, told me that it was, like, so intense during that time period that, like, his dad, when going to business trips, would have to ditch his car at the border of Northern Ireland because they were Catholics and it had a Catholic license, Catholic Ireland license plate, which might be targeted by armed militant groups, like, you know, the car bombs and stuff like that. And also, when inside of Northern Ireland, when it was, like, really, you couldn't, there was certain, like, slang, I guess you could call it that, that you couldn't say, because, like, some words would give away which Ireland you were from, which would be, like, because... It would be dangerous, because anyone could be anyone, basically. Anyways, back to the essay. 
Previous U.S. presidents, such as Nixon, quote, simply monitored events in Northern Ireland without any intention of expressing policy interest, asserting Britain's authority over Northern Ireland and classifying the Troubles as a domestic issue, end quote. However, at the Irish American Forum two days before the New York primary of 1992, which saw both Democratic nominees, Bill Clinton and Jerry Brown, quote, said they would appoint a special envoy to Northern Ireland, pressure the British on human rights violations there, and issue a visa to Jerry Adams, president of Sinn Féin. I think I said that right. <laughs> the political arm of the Irish Republican Army, IRA. They also offered to grant political asylum hearings in extradition cases that involve suspected IRA members living in the United States, support a more open immigration policy, and endorse the McBride principles against employment discrimination in Northern Ireland. End quote. During his first year, Clinton appointed Jean Kennedy Smith as ambassador to Ireland. However, as expressed in Jennifer O'Connor's February 28, 1993 memorandum to Marcia Hale, Clinton promised to, quote, appoint special envoy, discuss human rights abuses with John Major, encourage his successor in Arkansas and other governors to look at the McBride principles, end quote, with no avail. Clinton also refused to grant Jerry Adams a visa twice, and when pressed by New York City Mayor David Dinkins, said that Adams had not renounced terrorism as well as the IRA's October 23rd Belfast bombing, killing 10, including two children and a woman. In November 23rd letter to Clinton, Adams denied being a terrorist as British propaganda and asserted that Dublin did not back Clinton's decision to deny the visa. Adams also referred to his talks with Social Democratic and Labour Party leader John Hume as a potentially peaceful breakthrough. However, on February 1st, 1994, Clinton's policy seemingly changed when he granted Jerry Adams a limited visa to attend the National Committee on American Foreign Policy Conference on Northern Ireland in the hopes this would end IRA paramilitary violence. Although the following weeks saw escalating tensions with the shutdown of several major London airports from bomb threats and mortar attacks, ultimately this act, quote, was a significant influence on the Republican move from the Irish Republican Army to constitutional legitimacy. End quote. Later on August 31st, 1994, the IRA initiated a unilateral unconditional ceasefire after a delegation of private citizens visited Dublin and Belfast. Later that year, Clinton would grant Adams two more powerful visas and allow him to meet with U.S. officials, lift the ban on official U.S. contacts with Sinn Féin, announced the White House Initiative on Trade and Investment in Northern Ireland and the border countries, counties, border counties, and by the advice of National Security Council Staff Director Nancy Soderberg and National Security Advisor Tony Lake, who monitored the conflict, appoint Senator George Mitchell as the Special Advisor for Economic Initiatives in Ireland. In March of 1995, Clinton, Clinton, no, Clinton, Clinton, Clinton sounds like a mix between Clinton and Washington, Clinton, <laughs> anyways, Clinton issued Adams another visa 
and per quote permitted him to open an office in washington raise funds in the united states and attend a white house reception on saint patrick's day end quote these funds would make shane Sh shin fain thank you the richest party in northern ireland in November, Clinton became the first, quote, the first U.S. president to visit Northern Ireland, stopping in London, Belfast, and Dublin, and galvanizing popular support for peace and leading, leading to Senator Mitchell's direct involvement in the talks process, end quote. These peace talks, while cumbersome, would ultimately lead to the Belfast Agreement, also known as the Good Friday Agreement, on April 10, 1998. This agreement moved Northern Ireland's government from Ireland to Belfast and would involve all parties with enough votes. Ireland would remove its claim to Northern Ireland in exchange for involvement in cross-border economic agencies. Paramilitary groups would disband and release all political prisoners. In return, they could take part in peaceful democratic politics. Ah, peaceful. Usually not a word you would associate with politics. Yet, there is one question that begs an answer. What was the catalyst for such a successful peacebuilding operation? This question can be summed up with three points. America's Catholic-Irish population, changing British relations, and skilled foreign policy administrators. Quote, historically, Democrats have been more in tune to the Irish situation because of the Irish component of their party, end quote. Even so, neither Democratic candidate of 1992 cared to attend the Irish-American Forum, nor much for Northern Ireland in general. This all changed with the results of the Connecticut primary, which dramatically changed perspective. With Quote, Brown narrowly beating Clinton, 37% to 36%, and carried 40% of the white Catholic voters to Clinton's 35%. White Catholics constituted 47% of voters in the primary, end quote. However, it must be noted that although the Irish tended to congregate in significant states, such as New York, Massachusetts, and California, it is debatable as to whether or not the 44 million Irish Americans were as significant of a voting bloc as Clinton believed so. Quote, First, as in Ireland itself, the population is deeply divided over religion. Tufts University professor Tony Smith notes that the two congressional caucuses that only the Irish have is a significant uh, is a sign of disagreement, not strength. Second, the group tends to be highly assimilated, having immigrated earlier, creating a more Americanized identity that reduces concern over foreign policy decisions regarding their homeland, end quote. However, the idea of a unified Irish voting bloc significantly influenced Clinton's policy in regards to Northern Ireland, especially when considering Jerry Brown was a former J-suit and descendant from the Tipperary clan. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to... I'm very tired right now. <laughs> this was what likely caused Clinton to later clarify his position on the conflict in Northern Ireland in his public letter to Bruce Morrison.
co-chairman of Irish Americans, while calling out Britain for its job discrimination against Catholics and police brutality. Quote, a realistic solution to the suffering can be achieved only through political negotiations and the consent of the people, end quote. Changing Anglo-American and Anglo-Irish relations also influenced the decision to become involved in Northern Ireland. While America had long-standing positive relations with both nations, America had a special relationship with Britain due in part to economic, cultural, and linguistic ties, which was the reason America had behind its neutrality in Northern Ireland conflict. Due to the collapse of the Soviet Union, removing the need for an Anglo-American partnership against communism, Quote, American presidents theoretically enjoyed more leeway to pursue an Irish policy divorced from concerns over maintaining the special relationship, end quote. In the December 15, 1993 Downing Street Declaration, Taoiseach Albert Reynolds and Prime Minister John Major, also, by the way, Taoiseach is the Irish version of a prime minister, emphasized the importance of peacebuilding, ending paramilitary violence, dialogues, etc., most of all, they agreed that Britain had no, quote, strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland, end quote, and were willing to transfer Northern Ireland to Ireland if elected so peacefully by the people without coercion. This declaration was what changed Clinton's position into a more active approach, ultimately being one of the causes leading to granting Jerry Adams the first visa. Along with this, the election of the Liberal New Labour Party and Prime Minister Tony Blair in May 1997 marked the beginning of a strong push for peace in the British government. Quote, as long as the Conservatives were in power and the Northern Ireland problem was contained from the mainland, it was never a top priority for the Conservative Party to resolve the conflict, for the Conservatives had the backing of the largest voting bloc of members of Parliament from Northern Ireland, namely the Ulster Unionists in the House of Commons. End quote. Quote, in political scientist Graham Allison's institutional model, decisions are made at the top level of government not by any single actor such as the president, but rather many actors as players, who act in terms of no consistent set of strategic objectives, but rather according to various conceptions of national, organizational, and personal goals. End quote. In this case, we must look at several individuals, such as Jean Kennedy Smith, Nancy Soderberg, and Tony Lake, key senators, and George Mitchell. For starters, Jean Kennedy Smith was passionate about her native homeland, to the point of being labeled by the U.S. ambassador to Britain as, quote, an ardent IRA apologist and the in-house coach for the Irish lobby, end quote. When she became ambassador of, of Ireland, she forced deputy of the Dublin embassy Tom Tonkin to resign, most likely due to his lack of sympathy for the Irish in Northern Ireland conflict and stringent visa laws. She was vital in supporting the initial visa for Jerry Adams, which was significant as this visa was a public statement as to who the U.S. backed. On the other hand, Nancy Soderberg and Tony Lake's motivation for peacebuilding was for career gains. Northern Ireland was one of the hottest geopolitical conflicts, yet one of the easiest for the U.S. to manage as it would internationalize the situation and would not require military involvement. 
Soderbergh began creating a policy centered around her, while Blake spent a fourth of his time in Northern Ireland and had several NSC members debating the situation. Quote, Together, Soderbergh and Lake helped shape the informal network of communication that underpinned Clinton's Irish policy, which essentially cut out the State Department, end quote, who were pro-British. Key senators such as Ted Kennedy and Daniel Moynihan were key in pressuring Clinton into considering Irish issues in exchange for support in domestic policy. Most significantly, these senators led 40 members of Congress to grant Adams a visa against the wishes of the State Department and the British Embassy. Probably the most important figure in regards to the conflict is George Mitchell, quote, a natural treadable shooter. His tenacity, patience, and ability to develop a consensus among the parties produced an acceptable compromise, end quote. Mitchell would chair the International Body on Arms Decommissioning, which would release a report on January 22, 1995, detailing how decommissioning should go about and about governmental reforms in regards to peacekeeping and equal treatment. This report introduced the Mitchell Principles, which were a to democratic and exclusively peaceful means of resolving political issues, b to the total disarmament of all paramilitary organizations, see to agree that such disarmament must be verifiable to the satisfaction of an independent commission, d to renounce for themselves and to oppose any effort by others to use force or threaten to use force to influence the course or the outcome of all party negotiations, e to agree to abide by the terms of any agreement reached in all party negotiations and to resort to democratic and exclusively peaceful methods in trying to alter any aspect of that outcome which with which they may disagree. And F, to urge that punishment killings and beatings stop and to take effective steps to prevent such actions. The Mitchell Principles would form the basis for successfully negotiating the Belfast Agreement. The Irish-American population, changing British relations, as well as skilled diplomats were key to the Clinton administration's successful mediation in the conflict in Northern Ireland. Since then, further agreements have decommissioned the IRA, settled the parade-slash-protest conflict, built Anglo-Irish relations, and aimed for, quote, reconciliation and economic renewal in Northern Ireland, end quote. Yet still, the situation in Northern Ireland tends to fluctuate at times. Post-Brexit, the Northern Ireland Protocol is a main source of contention between Unionists and Nationalists. So yeah, that's it for today. Honestly, this recording wasn't one of my best, but like, I'll make it up for you guys in the outro song. Thank you, and bye! Oh, it is the biggest mix-up that you have ever seen. Me father, he was orange, and me mother, she was green. Oh, my father was an Ulster man, proud Protestant was he.